everyone. On the next episode of Noon, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Michelle, a retired nurse who dedicated the majority of her career to the specialized fields of pediatrics and the neonatal intensive care unit. Now, in her well-deserved retirement, Michelle has taken on a new role as the host of the podcast, The Conversing Nurse. This unique podcast is a tribute to the nursing profession, featuring insightful interviews with various nurses and their supporting staff members. Join us for a delightful conversation as Michelle shares her wealth of experiences from the world of pediatrics and the NICU, and how her journey has led her to amplify the voices and stories of fellow nurses through the Conversing Nurse podcast. This episode promises to be an engaging exploration of the diverse narratives within the nursing community. Let's get started. Hey everyone, if you're looking for an amazing book to read, I have a great suggestion. Ready Left, Ready Right. It's a medical thriller written by one of my good friends and favorite new authors, Dee Dee Finder. Dee Dee Finder believes in supporting first responders and their mental health, so with every purchase of Ready Left, Ready Right, a portion of the proceeds goes directly to the nonprofits, Debriefing the Frontlines, 62 Romeo, and the Overwatch Collective. The book is now available on Amazon. Don't forget to listen to our podcast interview with Didi Finder, Season 2, Episode 14. You'll be able to find the link for his book and our noon interview in the description below. Before we begin today, a quick heads up. Noon is spreading the holiday cheer with a 20% discount using code NOON20. That's N-O-O-N-2-0. This is ideal for gifting medical providers or indulging yourself. Act quickly. The offer ends December 31st. Share photos of wearing Noon gear on our Facebook group page for a chance to win more fantastic merch in upcoming raffles. Check out the link in the episode description below. All right, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the Noon podcast today. I appreciate you coming out. Well, thank you, Sam. I'm really happy to be here. I really love what you're doing for medical professionals everywhere. You're a voice and you're bringing attention to a lot of these topics that affect us in a really deep way and that we're not always talking about. So just so happy that you're doing it and uh, I'm happy to be here. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yes, no, I appreciate it. And I appreciate that you came out. Um, one of my friends is actually, and it's actually a mutual friend of ours, um, DD Finder, suggested that we talk and sit down and see where it goes. And I reached out to you and I'm glad that you were able to come out not too long after the holiday. <laughs> I appreciate it. Can I go ahead and get an introduction from you? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Michelle Harris and I am a nurse I've been a nurse for 36 years, and uh, half of that was in pediatrics, and half of that was in the neonatal intensive care unit. And then I retired and started a podcast. So first, I'd like to address a strong work to you for being anywhere near Pete's. You know, Pete's, for everybody who's listened before, I, I... Peds are just not great calls for me. And I think it's just because I've had so many bad peds calls that I would just rather stay as far away from that as I possibly can. But kudos to you seriously for being there and being in the NICU as well. I know that's a that's a pretty hard place to get into. There's a lot of competition to get into the NICU and it sounds like you've done it for several years. So what drew you uh, to the pediatric side of nursing? Well, when you hear it, you're just gonna go, wow. 
So when I graduated nursing school in 1985, I was looking for a job. And believe it or not, in the 80s, there was a glut of nurses. There were so many nurses and so few positions. And this was true in my little small town. So I started looking for jobs and I was 21 years old. And of course, where I started looking was at the hospital that I was currently working at as a, as a certified nurse's aide. So one of the jobs was on an ortho floor and I was like, no, broken bones don't sound fun. Another one was on a cancer ward. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And I forget where the other one was. And then the fourth one, there were only four positions. Fourth one was in pediatrics. And this was my reasoning. Hmm, pediatrics. I like kids. I'm one of eight kids. Kids are fun. Sounds like I'll be a pediatric nurse. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. <laughs> you can see the errors in my thinking right there in my, my young mind. And man. I think in that case, ignorance is bliss, right? <laughs> It really was. It really was, Sam. Because, man, I started and it just took off and I had no idea. Of course, I love kids, you know, but sick kids are a different matter. And really sick kids even more. And the thing that I wasn't thinking about at the time when I said I love kids is kids come with parents, right? They're, they're a unit. They're, you can't separate them. And interactions with parents don't always go smoothly. So it was a challenge for sure. But I loved it. Yeah, it must have been good because you stuck around for a long time and then went on to NICU. Yeah, I was there in Pete's for 18 years and I really loved it. Kids are very special in that it takes a lot to gain their trust. But when you do, it's just a really special relationship and you know, having to do painful things, painful procedures, seeing kids sick, it's its really, really tough on the child, first of all, and then the parents, and of course us, we don't like to see any suffering at all. So, but it was, uh, most of the time, it was kids recovering from minor surgeries, infections, respiratory disease, we had a couple kids that had sickle cell. We had some kids with leukemia, uh, but we're about 45 minutes from the next tertiary center that actually has a children's hospital. So a lot of those super sick kids went up north to that hospital. Were you in the ER or in an inpatient? Yeah, it was an inpatient peds ward. That's crazy. And good that you guys had such a close, another pediatric center that you could transfer really sick kids out. Here in New Mexico, you know, in the main city that I live in here, we have a couple of pediatric like designated, well, we only have one pediatric ER, designated ER. All of the facilities can treat pediatrics, but they'll usually get transferred out. And that, I mean, in our entire state of New Mexico, these are the pediatric places. So sometimes when they're having to be transferred out, it can be four or five, six hour transports on the ground if they don't have any ability, uh, availability for fixed wing or for rotor. Sure, yeah. We were very lucky to have that big children's hospital just right up the road. So some of our kids went there, but um, a lot of stabilization we had to do first in our pediatrics ward before they were transferred. And, you know, we saw 
uh, this was the 80s so it was before the advent of a lot of these great asthma medications so where i live in the central valley of california really high population of of asthmatics allergies you know we have a lot of agriculture around us we have poor air quality so we just saw tons of asthmatics that were really really sick and like i said you know minor surgeries uh, stuff like that, broken bones, you know, kids in traction, kids in casts for, you know, many, many weeks in our pediatrics ward. In those times when you guys were transferring them out, was it mostly ground or were you able to do like a fixed wing or a rotor transport as well? Yeah, we did mostly ground because it was 45 minutes. Actually, it'd probably be about 35 if they're going, um, you know, code three is that the word for it yeah <laughs> emergency <laughs> sirens blaring and everything they could probably get there in 35 minutes um and i do remember a few times where our local ambulance company drove the child to our airport which is about five minutes from the hospital and then there would be a helicopter or a fixed wing waiting there and even some of those kids didn't go to that tertiary center. They went up north to like Stanford or UCSF. So it seemed like those oh, were okay. the kids, yeah, that had like maybe severe cardiac defects or other things that even that children's hospital at the time was not doing. And now they're, le they're a level, almost a level four now. So I think they're doing probably everything. That's really cool. Yeah. So what prompted, and it sounds like you had a really good time at Peds. What prompted your move into the NICU? Again, you know, not, uh, not anything like, oh, I had this passion to work NICU, right? It was my boss at the time was the boss over pediatrics and NICU. And we were trying to get a designation from the state of California called California Children's Services. And so it's a, it's a big designation. It's a big financial designation. And there's a lot of hoops to jump through to get that designation, you know, as it should be. But one of the things that CCS said is you're, you can't have a boss over peds and NICU. They have to each have their own bosses. And so my manager, I just loved her. She was amazing. And I said, you know what? If she's gonna go to the NICU, that's where I'm going. And the NICU wasn't foreign to me because uh, I had floated there a lot. Um, anybody that knows about inpatient pediatrics knows that they have really times of high census and times of very low census. And so we float a lot when it's low census. And of course, one of our sister units that we floated to was the NICU. So I was familiar with it and I always enjoyed floating there. It wasn't, you know, anything that I didn't enjoy. But then when I went there full time, it was like, oh, wow, I'm okay, I'm gonna be here full time. You know, I gotta really delve into this population and, uh, take it a little bit more seriously and kind of up my game. Yeah. And our hospital was changing. Our units were changing at that time and we were growing. Uh, this was like 2007, 2008. 
we had a really high population of uh, methamphetamine use mm -hmm. and uh, it was just rampant for about three years there. So we had a lot of babies that were born that were uh, having a lot of problems and it, it just created a lot of problems for our community, for our unit. We were growing kind of too fast. We were expanding our services. We had brought in pediatric hospitalists and neonatologists. And, you know, earlier I was talking about the tertiary center that was just an hour up the road. And we kind of had a comfort in knowing that if we had a really bad baby, if we had a really sick baby, we knew that baby wasn't going to be hanging around for very long because we were going to call the transport team and they were going to go up north. Well, now with the with our hospitalists and our neos, they said, uh, no, we're we're keeping this baby. <laughs> we're like, wait, yeah. <laughs> this, this baby only weighs, you know, a thousand uh, grams. You know, we weren't used to that. And this now oh, this baby's on a ventilator and needs lines. And so it was like this huge learning curve really, really quick. And it was an exciting and time but scary. So you said that the, the methamphetamine use, that was all in the last, uh, like mid 2000. Yeah. It started really 2008. You were saying, yeah, it really started hitting our community right in there. Like 2006 to 2010, we just were inundated in our area. And, and, you know, you'd hear on the news that they, you know, they, they found this meth lab here. And, and, um, of course, whenever kids are involved and there's drugs involved, it's like, um, child protective services has to come in and, you know, all that that entails. And yeah, there was a lot going on. Yeah. It sounds like it. So which one did you like, or did you like one more than the other, like pediatrics versus neos? You know, they were, they're both so different. Um, obviously pediatrics is a lot, a lot of kids, you, you can communicate with them if they're, you know, of age to be able to communicate. Um, babies also communicate in their own way. And that was a little bit more difficult to figure out. This was the age of, I went to my first conference in 2010 and it was a developmental care conference. And so this term was being thrown around a lot in NICU's developmental care, uh, trauma-informed care. And my boss said, I, I think you need to go to this conference. And so she sent me to the conference in Las Vegas and I actually went to the conference. I didn't just party in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. <laughs> right? Because, you know, that happens when people go to conferences. But I went, yeah, and uh, and I loved it. And I just, I learned so much. And when I got back, she said, I think I'm going to create this position for you and you're going to be developmental care nurse. And so I really jumped in, you know, I had to because there was a huge learning curve to learn everything I could about developmental care. And then I had to teach it to our staff because at that time we didn't have a clinical educator or we didn't 
we didn't have a clinical educator or a clinical nurse specialist. And um, the NICU that I just retired from has a fantastic clinical nurse specialist and she's up on everything. So no problems there, but I just really started loving that part, learning that part of NICU that taking care of these premature and sick babies, what we do in the NICU is going to affect them for the rest of their life. And we need to do it right and we need to do it well. So um, I did that until I retired and uh, I really loved that. Worked really closely with the parents, got to see the parents every day. Um, I also during that time became a lactation specialist. So helping moms achieve their goals of breastfeeding their premature infant or providing breast milk for their premature infant, which is very, very difficult to do. That was really um, fulfilling for me to watch them be able to achieve their goals. Yeah, so you've been kind of around where like they, a lot of specialists said, you should breastfeed your baby. That is the best thing you can do for them. And then it went to the studies showing, well, it's not really that good for them. It doesn't matter if you use, you know, the powder formula or you breastfeed. And now we're back on this. Yes, you should breastfeed your, your children, yeah. you know, so you've gotten to see all that. That's kind of neat. It has been quite a ride. You're absolutely right, Sam. You know, you just have to follow the evidence and, you know, it's breastfeeding is really controversial. There's, there's a lot mm. of guilt around breastfeeding or providing breast milk. And especially when, when a, a parent, they deliver a baby prematurely and the baby goes to the NICU, they already feel like they failed somehow. A lot of women feel like my body failed me. I did something wrong to cause myself to go into labor early. So they're coming with all this guilt and, you know, maybe they were wanting to breastfeed. Maybe they weren't wanting to breastfeed. And one of the very first discussions that the neonatologist has with the parents is about providing breast milk because for premature babies, it is just the, the gold standard. There's just numerous, numerous studies out there, you know, touting the benefits of breast milk for premature babies. And so, you know, you might be talking to this mom who, first of all, is like, what did I do to cause this? And now someone's asking me to do something that I really never intended to do. And on top of that, maybe they don't have a lot of health literacy and, you know, they don't know a lot about their bodies and how their bodies work. So it's a lot of education and you can't just educate one time. It's repeatedly over days and weeks and the months that some of these babies are with us. But it's so gratifying to see them come in and the first few days and they're just like, you know, deer in the headlights, they're traumatized. And we don't even talk about that we don't talk about any of that in the first few days because they're not going to be receptive. You know, they are just hanging on by the skin of their teeth. And uh, so we wait until they're a little bit more receptive. 
and then we start talking about more particulars but it's just been uh that part of my job love it and i've said this before like the perfect job is to be a developmental care specialist and a lactation specialist because they're ha- they go hand in hand you know mm-hmm. um skin to skin all of that stuff that's developmental care that helps with the baby's brain and that helps with mom's breast milk and it's all connected so that's been a lot of fun for me that is really cool have you seen that some bodybuilders will buy because you can buy breast milk right online from people who have extra there are bodybuilders that buy breast milk to drink it as part of their regiment to help their proteins and their muscles and stuff get bigger. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. And I actually did a presentation at work, um, showing some of the nefarious ways that people sell their breast milk and they've analyzed some of these things on like Craigslist and it it would just really, it would be, it would disgust you. (laughs) It's really gross. I would like to hear about this. (laughs) What other ways can people sell their breast milk for? That's so weird. Yeah, no breast milk. There's, there's a huge market for it there. Like you said, um, some bodybuilders, some people that are sick, actually some people with cancer because there are stem cells in breast milk. And that's one of the great things of how babies can benefit because their bodies are growing at these enormous rates and they're getting these stem cells from the breast milk and, you know, they're getting stem cells that help their bones, that help their kidneys, that help the lining of their gut. And so it's really beneficial for them. I don't know, you know, protein wise, there's no more protein in breast milk than there is in, you know, cow's milk or really any mm-hmm. other milk. Uh, so I don't know how much benefit the bodybuilders are getting out of it, but you know, people start on these crazes and you, you just do. never know. Yeah. And there's a big market out there. Like people are selling breast milk for, you know, upwards of, an ounce. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. And people are buying it like in like 100 to 500 ounce aliquots. So they're spending a lot of money. Yeah. But you don't know. Yeah. You don't know what this mom has ingested. They've found illicit drugs in breast milk that they've, that's been sold on Facebook Marketplace, uh, Craigslist. It's not refrigerated at the right temp, so they've found a lot of um, bacteria in it. They have, yeah, they've, they've actually also found like cow's milk. So like say a woman pumps and she doesn't have a full ounce, so she'll add like cow's milk to it, but then she'll sell it as, you know, like pure breast milk. So, um, yeah, there's some not so great things going on. (laughs) (laughs) Not even something I would have ever thought about, like ever. (laughs) That's so weird. Yeah. Oh, people do weird things. (laughs) People do weird things. Yep, they do. And for money, they're even weirder. This is true. This is, I mean, look at me. I started a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and we're rich, right? <laughs> yes, we're so rich. Oh we're my gosh. In it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. I there is a very big stigma on there. Like so uh Dee Dee Finder had actually told me and Tyler about um how we were in the top ten percent and we were like, that is so cool. And people just think automatically that you get a bunch of money for that. And you don't, unfortunately, there's a lot more work that goes into it. But you know this because you've started a podcast. And what's the name of your podcast? Yes, uh, my podcast is called the Conversing Nurse Podcast. So I mainly talk to nurses, um, but I have branched out to some other medical professionals who work with nurses and help support nurses. Uh, But it's been it's been so much fun. It it has saved me in a lot of ways. Um, so I listened to one of your episodes, um, and I think it was Ryan. And I listened on my walk just yesterday. And one of the things I think it was in your title. It's not what I did. It's who I was. Mm-hmm. And that just resonated with me. So about six months before I knew I was going to retire, I said, I think I'm probably going to have trouble in retirement because I am so connected to this identity of being a nurse. And I'm going to need to stay connected to the nursing community somehow. And recently, you know, about a year before that, I had only started listening to podcasts. So it's not like I had been a listener for, for a long time. My daughter has listened for far longer than I have. And, you know, she would tell me here and there, oh my God, there's this great podcast. She likes like the true crime and all that. And Mm -hmm. I listened to some of hers and then, you know, 2 a.m. I'm thinking about that damn episode, you know, where (laughs) I'm like, no, I can't do this. I can't do the true crime (laughs) shit. So I did find some other nursing, um, podcasts. And so I was, I was pretty new to podcast world. Of course, I didn't know anything about starting a podcast myself. Being a listener, it sounds so easy, right? Like you're yeah. listening <laughs> and it's just like, this is great, you know, great guests, great conversation, you know, great audio. I love it. And then when you're faced with actually doing it and it's like, Oh, which microphone do I get? Okay. This microphone sounds like shit. And then you go on to the next microphone and, and microphones are not cheap, you know? And it's like, (laughs) it's, it's just, uh, and the technology, you know, building a website that was ridiculous. Um, and I, and I actually am a techie person. I, I understand it. I was my unit tech go-to person when anybody had something wrong with their computer or they need to download something or they needed to save something on their M drive. Like I was that person to go to. So I understood tech, but I'd never built a website before. And it was just me. I wasn't, nobody was doing it for me. So that was a real challenge. Um, but I just started, you know, talking to nurses and like we had talked earlier, I'm lucky that I worked in a hospital for 40 years. So I knew a lot of nurses just in my hometown 
And I come from a family, a large family, eight kids, and six of them are nurses. So I had some of my siblings to uh, draw from first. My sister, <laughs> my sister Jennifer is a flight nurse, uh, kind of right up your alley. And uh, so much respect for her. And she's also a pilot. Um, and oh, then, wow. Yeah. And my brother, Chris, he's a researcher. So, you know, I got to kind of get my feet wet with uh, my siblings who weren't too critical of me <laughs> uh, before I branched <laughs> out into some of the other nurses that I had worked with. But um, it's been so fun. And I just, every guest that I talk to, I'm just like, we don't do video, but, and I always tell my guests, it's like, if you could see me right now, my mouth is wide open <laughs> because some of the things that these nurses and other medical professionals are doing just blow me away every time. Like they're so innovative and creative and fearless. And I feel like I was not a fearless nurse at all. The fact that I stayed in the same hospital, in the same unit for so many years says right there, I like things to be the same. I like consistency. <laughs> I yeah. don't like change, right? So There's um, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I feel validated, Sam. I appreciate you should. That. There's uh -huh. I think we need more people to stay like the traveling nurse stuff is great it is great I, I love that we give people the opportunity to go and try things that maybe they wouldn't have tried before and they get to float in positions where they wouldn't have floated before but I do think it, we need more people like you because we need people to teach the people that are coming in that have no experience you know what I mean and that that I think says something to your character as an individual that you were able to stay with that hospital for as long as you did well, I appreciate that. I think there is a, a, a conception that, especially nowadays, it's like, man, the hustle is real. The hustle yes. that I hear from my guests is like, they are always thinking, they are always on it for the next best thing. And so, so part of me is like, oh man, you're, like, you're missing out a little bit by always hustling and always you know, looking for the next best thing it's okay to to kind of do the same thing over and over um but you know it's each person's perspective you know the hustle for yeah. me is nothing that i want to i don't want to go down that road i'm not a hustler and manpower to people that are and everyone is not happy to stay in one place their whole career and i understand that too so yeah it's different for everybody and i think I think if you find a good hospital with great bosses, it sounds like you had great bosses the entire time that you were there and they paid you well and fairly and you were treated fairly and your, your, your ratios were good, then I see no problem with that. You know, and I, again, I commend you for that because it is hard to find that person that can train and that person that can educate the people that are coming in. Yeah. Well, um, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Things got crazy at COVID, but that was crazy for everybody. So I am not unique in that at all. It definitely affected our hospital, our community, our NICU, 
me personally. So a lot of strife, I guess you could say, everywhere. Did you end up getting COVID at all? So I am still a COVID virgin. Oh, Knock on wood. Oh, you're, you're trapped in your little closet. Or is that where you're staying? <laughs> right there in the closet? You're not going out anywhere? No, that's right. <laughs> no. Um, although, you know, for COVID, I've said this before, COVID for me, I'm kind of a homebody. So when we went on lockdown, I was like, what? I don't have to go anywhere. I can't go anywhere. This is fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> this is my dream. Now, of course, I was still going to work five days a week. But when I drove to work, there was no one on the streets. It was very eerie. It was so eerie. Yeah. And I got to work in record time. So I went to work every day, definitely Monday through Friday, but I went work home, work home. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a really strange time, uh, definitely looking back. But for me, there wasn't the angst of like, oh my gosh, I can't go out to the store. I can't do this or that. Um, I was just really happy to like, yeah, I'll stay home. That's no problem for yeah. me. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I think living in New Mexico, like we all got locked down in band or whatever, but um, they did open up the parks. They had them shut down for a little bit, but once they opened up the parks, like we probably did more traveling in that year, going out into the, you know, the natural spaces and getting to see things than we had in a long time. It, it forced us to be able to go and do that stuff. Yeah. Which was really cool. Gosh, you have some beautiful parks there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Going outside, you know, once we, we were allowed out, definitely going to wide open spaces and spending time in nature, which is something that for me, I didn't hardly do. So like you, it was like, oh, these are trees. Oh, they're really beautiful. <laughs> oh, I hear birds yeah. singing. How wonderful. You know, because when you're working five days a week, it's like you're in a hospital building and you're not hearing all that you're hearing babies crying and alarms going off and you know so it was nice to actually be able to get out into nature and experience that well that's good that's good so you know i know like we've talked a lot about covid on the show before and we've talked a lot about you know people not doing well but i guess i've not talked to anybody from a NICU perspective like was that something that was affecting the babies a lot and affecting the parents a lot um, before the they were going into labor yeah that's a good question so um, I, and I got this a lot because I had a lot of anxiety during COVID and it, and it wasn't really about my job in the NICU per se it was more about what's going on in the world and all these people are dying and this was pre-vaccine and you know and and am I gonna get COVID and I have comorbidities you know I'm overweight and you know am I gonna be one of the one of the fatalities and so my my anxiety was totally focused on me right mm -hmm. and um so the NICU, what happened in the NICU was we had, we never had any babies that contracted COVID. So we had babies that were born uh, from mothers that had COVID 
and we had several mothers that were very, very sick with COVID and they went into premature labor and delivered very prematurely. And then the mother promptly went to the ICU where she continued to be very, very sick. And um, so we lost several moms while their babies were still in the NICU, very premature. And so that was really difficult to watch. And of course, that first month that we were in lockdown, our hospital, we didn't, like every hospital, didn't allow visitors in. And that was no different in labor and delivery. If a mom was in labor, she had to come in and labor by herself without her person there. And uh, that's really difficult. And had to stay the entire stay without, you know, her partner and they they could just you know see each other on zoom or whatever facetime so that was something that we had never seen before like many hospitals we had never experienced that and it was just crushing and you know for those families whose babies went to the NICU imagine you know your baby goes to the NICU and you can't your partner can't be there with you. You're the only one, yeah. but you've had a C-section and now you can't get up and walk for, you know, 24 hours and you don't know what's going on with the baby. So we got, you know, our NICU got an iPad, several iPads, and we were able to FaceTime uh, with the moms while they were still um, recovering before they could come up to the unit. So that caused us as as nurses and uh, doctors, just everyone that worked in the nursery or in the NICU, just we, we we didn't know what to do with that. That was just something that we had never experienced. So it was like a grieving process for us, watching those families um, also like grieve. And then of course, losing those moms and watching those families just, um, you know, be stressed to the complete max where you know they're trying to visit the baby in the NICU and everyone's having to do COVID tests and you know it was just completely ridiculous and I will say so that's kind of what happened with the NICU what happened and I was thinking about this the other day with our hospital and our community was so different. And I've said this before is, you know, nurses and other medical professionals, like we don't do it for the applause. So we do it because we have this innate drive to help people in their moment of need. So we don't do it for the applause. And, but what happened in the early months of COVID is there was a lot of applause from the community and from our sister units, from everybody in the hospital. We were sending each other food and the community was reaching out and, you know, it put, they were putting up banners. You know, we love our, we love our medical professionals. We love our nurses. We love our doctors. Um, so there was a lot of praise and we weren't used to that, but it felt good and it felt good to be recognized for something that we just love to do and that we don't seek yeah. applause for and then that ended really quickly when 
the vaccine came out, it was like, wow, now everyone became so polarized, right? And it was like you had, you know, you had the side of the vaccinators and then you had the unvaccinators. And a lot of them were in the same unit that we were working in with some of our, our colleagues in the same hospital, definitely in the community. And it was so divisive. And then all the crap on social media that went on. It, it was that part was just really sad to see. So yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that that part is over. And, you know, I will say that I retired in January of 2022. And I had to justify to myself that it was okay to retire. After a 40 year history with that hospital, I had to say, I don't think I really wanted to retire, but I was totally burnt out. And it wasn't just from COVID, it was from a lot of things, some personal things that were going on in my life at that time. I, my dad was dying and that was difficult. And, um, you know, I was grieving. Uh, I had lost my husband in 2016 and, you know, some traumatic circumstances. So there was a lot of, a lot of things going on, so I can't blame it on COVID, but I was just at a point in my life where I was like, I, I think I want to be done with this. I think I want to be done, but I felt this overwhelming sense of guilt. Like I had these voices telling me, but so you're just going to quit. You're a quitter. Yeah. You know, is that what you're doing? Like these people need you, like you need this. And I had these conversations with myself that were just crazy. And, you know, that little, you know, the devil on my shoulder was saying, oh, so you're a quitter. You know, I thought, I thought I knew you better. And the angel on my shoulder was like, Michelle, 40 years, that's enough. It's okay to stop now, you know? Yeah. Um, so there was that push pull. And ultimately I decided to, to retire and, uh, it was rough. It was rough. Those, I still have periods of roughness. It's been a year and a half. And what I miss most is the people and the, the camaraderie of our team. We had such a great team in my NICU. I was so blessed to work with so many great people and work well together. Um, and I miss, you know, the moms talking to the moms every day and the families and seeing the progression of when they come in and they're scared shitless. And then, you know, they're there for four or five months and they know everything about the place. They know everything about us. They know everything about their baby. They're leaving feeling like I can do this. I can take care of my baby. I can be you know, a competent parent and to see that progression was just so fulfilling. So I miss those things. Um, and just the banter, you know, people would come by my desk and just do stupid shit to my computer. And, you know, we just play jokes on each other. And yeah, that that's what I miss, you know, but it sounds like you're doing good in building a new community for yourself as well as for the people who listen to your podcast and 
and promote your podcast and actually get to go and be on your podcast. So it sounds like you're doing all of the right things that you need to be doing for yourself, which is good. Um, yep. Are there any other things that you do to help your mental health? Oh man. Um, you know, I think just there's been so much press on mental health. Definitely. I guess that's one thing that COVID was, was good for is it brought to the forefront that, you know, we need to care for ourselves. And, you know, I kind of had already had a wake up call because in 2009 I had breast cancer and the years before I had breast cancer, I was just not taking care of myself at all. I was working way too much, you know, full-time was three twelves a week and we were going through a shortage and I was picking up all these extra shifts and getting paid really well, you know, able mm -hmm. to put two girls through college, just cash, didn't have to get any loans. So the money was good, but I was just, I was just working all the time. I wasn't doing anything else. I wasn't, you know, I was going out to eat all the time because I didn't have any time to prep meals. I wasn't exercising and I was just stressed to the max. And then boom, breast cancer was like, Hey, hello. <laughs> it's time to slow the fuck That's... down. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. So I did. I did slow down and, and, you know, for the first time in a long time, really paid attention to those things and COVID when that came too, and I was super stressed, I was like, okay, you got to remember what you went through with the cancer. So you can't go down that road again. So you need to really focus on self-care. So for me, um, I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of things in art. Like I, I make cards for people. I paint um, anything that has, I journal. I just go in my room and it's just me and my paintbrush or whatever I'm doing at the moment. And I put on a podcast or I put on a playlist and I just kind of get into that. So that's good for me. No, that's fantastic. And I'm not trying to put you down by any means, but is there any reason why you're not seeking professional help? Oh, gosh, Sam, I have. And I have definitely. Okay. <laughs> many, yeah, many times in my life. And I have a therapist, not currently, because I just changed insurances. But I think I've had a, a therapist since I was in my 20s. And from time to time, you know, I delve into that because I get to the point where I can only help myself so much. And, and I do, I always try to help myself first, whether it's with books or, you know, online resources, um, just talking with people that have maybe had similar circumstances. So I try that route first, but I tend to like put things off for a long time. So I, I know like I can't put off my mental health. Um, my latest mental health foray was when I retired. I said, you know, I reached out to my therapist because I said, I have never retired before. I really don't know what to expect. I don't know 
if I'm going to like it, if I'm not, if I'm going to want to go back to work, which I did for a long time, I wanted to go back to work. Um, but mm-hmm. I held off and, and I'm still not working. So that kind of feels good. Um, <laughs> that is good. Yeah. I was like, oh no, just wait one more month, one more month. And then the next month I would reassess. What do you think? You want to go back to work? Mm, no, I think I'll wait one more month, but it went like that <laughs> for about six months. So, uh, yeah, I've held out for a, a little over a year and a half. But no, therapy is is essential for me. I know that um, some of these barriers I just can't get over myself. And, you know, my therapist will suggest something and it's just so like obvious. And I'm like, what? Like, why didn't I think of that? But, you know, our brains can just hijack us sometimes, right? And really yes. prevent us from seeing what's best for us. No, that's fantastic. And I really, I, I'm glad that you do at least know your body well enough, right, to know when you do have to get to that point where you do have to seek professional help and you do, it sounds like you have somebody on call that you can contact um, regularly Hello. when you need to, which is fantastic. <laughs> yep, exactly. Use yes. that phone, dial that number when you need to. Yes. Um, so do you feel comfortable talking about some of like the worst cases that you've had in your 40 years in a hospital? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I was prepping for this, for our talk today. I was thinking about some of those things and, you know, one of the things that came to mind was I was 22 years old. I had only been a nurse for a year and that's when, uh, the first, uh, pediatric death happened uh, to to well to me I guess it was she was my patient and she was three years old and had come in for pneumonia and then things just kind of rapidly progressed into sepsis and you know I was ill prepared you know like I said earlier my reasons for going into pediatric nursing were just um, based on really nothing grand I had no experience with it whatsoever and then to that first year was like a wake-up call oh like yeah I do like kids but kids are sick and kids come with their parents and I didn't expect all this and then my first pediatric death was even more devastating because um, it, it's not like I had a, like my head was in the clouds, like I didn't know kids could die, but it was just something that I had not experienced. So I just didn't have any experience with it. And, you know, um, I just remember after the child had passed away. So at that time, the parents couldn't stay during the night. They, we sent the parents home at eight o'clock at night, which was in and of itself just horrific. And we know better now that parents need, that children need their parents like at all times whenever they're sick and that parents should have access to their children at all times. So um, that was really sad. And I, you know, I remember that first year being a 21 year old nurse and, and having no children of my own and and telling the parents oh yeah it's time to go 
and seeing the anxiety on their face and the worry and just, you know, patting them on the back and saying, oh, it's going to be fine. Your child will be fine. You know, go home and get some rest. And then, of course, now I just feel like such a heel for ever doing that now, knowing what I know. And I even had some parents, you know, question me and say, like, are you even a nurse? Like, how old are you? Because I, I looked very young. <laughs> even at 21, mm -hmm. I looked like a teenager. Yeah. And, you know, they were like, show me your license because I don't believe you. And so stuff like that. But after that first pediatric death, you know, it was like uh, we had to put the child in a body bag. And my colleagues had done this before and I hadn't done it. And thank God for them because they were just like, I didn't know what to do. And I was like, what, what do we do now? And it was like, well, we have to call the parents. And so having to call the parents and, and, you know, the doctor saying, don't tell them on the phone that the child died. Like we need to wait till they get here. Just tell them that need, they need to come now. And you, you know, I mean, you may have had some experience with this, you know, calling someone and trying to deliver bad news, but not the whole story. It, it's very difficult. And so then they showed up and we told them that their child had passed away. And of course, you know, that was just crushing to all of us, you know, obviously to us, to them as well. But and then having to do like the postmortem care on a three-year-old child and, you know, give her a bath and then get ready to take her to the morgue and put her in a body bag. And I remember they were zipping up the body bag and, and I said, wait, 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 you guys stop. Like, she's not going to be able to breathe. And they just, my colleagues just looked at me and, you know, it was a look of like, compassion not like oh my god doesn't she know like the child is not breathing the child has passed away it was like oh she is not she's she's not handling this well like she's kind of in mm -hmm. shock and so they were very understanding with me and you know I was talking to somebody about debriefing I, I know Dee Dee and I talked about debriefing and we had debriefing in those days, but it wasn't the type of debriefing that was focused on mental health. It was yeah. like, what did we do right during this code? What, you know, did we give the right medications? Did we give them at the right time? Did we do compressions for the right amount of time? Did we intubate at the right time? Did we give the antibiotics? You know, it was, it was more questions of care instead of, you know, Michelle, you know, one of your colleagues noticed that you were having a hard time with the child being put in a body bag. What was going through your head at that time? You know, there was no focus on mental health. So it's just one of those things that, yeah, you got to come back to work the next day. Even that day, I had to continue taking care of patients. It's like, you can't go home and then you got to come back the next day and do it again. And that trauma just stacks up and it takes a while for that to, to be processed. So that was my, 
I think that was one of my worst days for sure. And, and I had lost children, you know, after that child, but I feel like I was more prepared for that. And, you know, I felt like I, I, I knew myself a little bit better and I knew what I needed to process that a little bit better. And then always having a therapist was helpful as well. Cause I could talk about those things, um, like more in depth. Yeah, that's, uh, that's rough. I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. And I think most of us as, you know, healthcare providers tend to remember our very first death or dead body. And that's just something that kind of sticks with us because it doesn't matter how much you get told about it in school. You don't know how you're going to handle it until you see it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that affects us in, in, I, it's like more ways than one, right? It affects us. And for long term, it affects us, except for those of us that get burned out where we get to the point where it's just like, that's another dead body. You know, that's when you kind of know it's time to move on or to, to do something different because you're not having the empathy that, that you were when you started, assuming you had it when you started, right? Like yeah, <laughs> some people just come in without that kind of empathy and it yeah makes you question why they're in the medical field in the first place. It's just like, uh, it's a job, you know? Yeah, exactly. But I did it, you know, this is what I do. It is what I do, but yeah, there are more reasons than that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so working with kids, right. You get to see a lot of crazy things. I sure, I'm sure in pediatrics you got to, too. What was the weirdest thing you ever saw shoved up a nose? Oh gosh, we had a lot of nose things. We had a lot of those kids, they, they were, they came to the ER and they got those things taken out in the ER, but a fascinating thing that I was thinking about, and I was just talking to my daughter about it the other day. I mean, we saw the normal things up the nose, like peas and, you know, car parts from like the little matchbox cars (laughs) and, Uh you know, just like food and stuff like that. Um, but one of the things that was happening during uh, the time that I was in pediatrics was we were use we were using leeches. So yeah, oh. these were medical leeches, and it's it's like I know at the time we were like, gosh, are we going back to the you know the dark ages? And they were like, no, no, no these. <laughs> these leeches are medical grade, you know, they haven't been on any other people. They didn't come out of a swamp or anything like that. But we had, we always had a lot of kids that amazingly, we had a lot of kids, sadly, that got run over by lawnmowers. And it was the same thing every time it was like the dad or the mom was out mowing the lawn. And these were always little toddlers and the toddler like ran up to the mom and tripped and the, the arm went underneath the lawnmower and the fingers got severed. And sometimes the hand got severed and sometimes the arm got severed. And Mm -hmm. we saw a lot of those injuries, which I think is really weird. Random. Exactly. It was like a small town that we lived in. I'm like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) And we had this great uh, plastic surgeon who, it was the time, I don't know if you remember this, but it was the time of the Lorena Bobbitt scandal. Do you remember Lorena Mm -hmm. Bobbitt? Okay, so. I don't. Yeah, she 
was so she was a scorned wife i guess her husband had an affair or something and so in the middle of the night she took a knife a very sharp knife and she cut off his penis and she threw it out the window and he woke up obviously in great pain i would hope so (laughs) and they called ems of course wouldn't you have loved to be on that call (laughs) and they found his penis outside where she had thrown it and they took it to the hospital with them put it on ice and so our plastic surgeon was telling us that that the easiest things to reattach were penises and fingers because he attached a lot of kids fingers and he said it's because they have one artery one vein and one nerve and if you have a clean cut you can find those things very easily and if it hasn't if too much time hasn't elapsed you know, and it still has good integrity, then you can reattach it without any problem. And so we had, he did a lot of surgeries and he would reattach these fingers and put pins in them. And of course, a lot of swelling would happen and they would be very echomotic, a lot of bleeding. And so that's when we started using these medical leeches. But man, it was freaky. It was freaky to us. And then can you imagine like you're, two-year-old is you know in the in in the hospital and the nurses are bringing out these leeches and they're putting them on your child's fingers and and we had to try to convince the parents that you know this is legit and it was it worked it worked so well oh my gosh it worked so well and i was just telling someone the other day like why did we ever stop that because it worked so well like we saw the swelling go down and these kids healed so much faster. But yeah, that was our time with medical leeches. That was the most bizarre thing Mm -hmm. I think I've experienced. I do actually think that medical leeches are coming back. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. I've seen it used a couple of times. Yes. I I do think it is making a comeback. There's a lot of good studies out there because they do help promote circulation and yeah, I think the hardest part is just convincing the patient that it's really okay. Absolutely. I don't know us. that I would agree to that. Exactly. We had some parents that were like, no, you are not doing that. And it took, you know, it took the surgeon coming in and, you know, sitting down with them and saying, no, this is legitimate and this will really help your child. And we still had some holdouts that were like, no, we're not doing that. But most of them, once they understood, you know, what was behind it, they were like all for it and it worked. So they got to see that. So that was cool. cool. Yeah. And, um, you know, another challenging time that I, that I remember was, uh, we were, we had a a child come in that, uh, was a toddler and, So this child had been sleeping on a bed, according to the parents, and had woken up and had a fever. And so they brought the child to the hospital. And, you know, we could see that this kid, it looked like the kid had meningitis. He had like the nuchal rigidity and we were going to have to do a spinal tap and all that. And they were a Hmong family. I'm sorry, they were a what family? They were Hmong. It's H-M-O-N-G. And oh. so they're Southeast Asian. 
Laos. They had like immigrated over from Laos. And uh, we had a large influx of immigrants uh, at that time of Southeast Asians. And we really didn't know a lot about their practices. And so this family came in and brought their child and we ended up doing a spinal tap and the child had meningitis and, you know, we did all the proper treatments for that. But when we were talking to the dad, he said, he said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to kill the dog. And we said, wait, what? And he said, I'm going to kill the dog. And he said, what happened was my child was sleeping on the bed and the dog jumped on the bed. And then the baby woke up and started crying. And then the baby had a fever and we brought the baby to you and now the baby's very sick. So the dog caused the baby to be very sick. And we were like, no, yeah. We said, no, no, that was just a coincidence. Like your child was already very sick and the dog just, you know, the baby woke up crying, but was already sick before that. And he was like, no, no, no. He was convinced like this, this dog, made the baby sick and we had interpreters come in and we had some people from the the Hmong community come in and try to try to talk to this dad and we didn't find out if he ever did you know kill the dog um, but they did bring in a, a healer from their community and the doctor allowed once the child started feeling better they did um a ceremony over the baby with uh, pennies and they would rub the pennies like on the baby's skin and something about that ceremony with the copper and the rubbing of the coins was like very symbolic in their community and um, the baby you know started getting better and of course the dad was like you know the baby got better because of this ceremony and it's like okay the i'm sure that did help also did the antibiotics and the fluids and they were very very mistrusting of like western medicine and so it was just kind of cool to see like the the melding of these two cultures of like western medicine working with you know their healers and their practices. And uh, that was really cool to see. But yeah, we don't know what happened if he ever uh, did anything to the dog. So that was interesting. And, you know, along those same lines. That is interesting. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a crazy time. That's It's just, it's neat to see the cultural differences. Yeah, it it was it was really because we really did not know much yeah we did not know much about their culture and you know when i was thinking some of the mistakes i've made as a nurse like one big one that i still to this day just you know regret and and feel bad about and it's it's really just because of a lack of like my knowledge about another culture like I did not have cultural awareness. Again, this was a Southeast Asian family, a Hmong family. The child came in sick and I think this child had dehydration and we needed to start an IV. And so my colleague and I took her into the treatment room. And so Hmong families, uh, Laotian families, they 
wrap um, like threads around the, the, their uh, wrist. And so these represent like the child's life. And, you know, we took the child into the, into the treatment room and we were starting the IV and, you know, I cut those bands off cause I didn't know what they were. I, to me, it just looked like yarn was wrapped around the child's wrist. This looked like a little yarn bracelet and I wanted full access to the arm. You know, whenever you put an IV in, you got to see what the site looks like and everything. And so I just cut them off and I put them in a little bag. And then we returned the child to her mother. And then I, I held up the bag and gave her the bag. And she just like hit the floor and started wailing and crying and throwing herself around. And it was very dramatic and, and she didn't speak the language. And I was like, we need to get an interpreter in here right away. And at that time we didn't have like the video interpreter phones that we have. And so we had to call someone from the community to come in. And there's of course lag time. In the meantime, this mom was just completely distraught. And so the interpreter gets there and I told him what happened. And he said, wait, you cut the strings off of her? And I said, yeah. And he said, you, you, you just cut like her life energy off of this child. And you know, he's like, that's why the mom is reacting the way she is. Cause you just basically like destroyed the child's life. And, you know, I was completely devastated and like, I'm sorry, didn't cut it. You know, that wasn't going to cut it, but it's like, I didn't know what else to do. We went in there and I talked to the mom and I just said, I'm so sorry. Like I had no idea that this was, that that's what these this bracelet meant and that, that this was part of your culture and I'm so sorry. And, you know, I don't know what I can do to make this better. And, you know, that child had to stay in our unit for several days and, you know, the mom wouldn't let me take care of her, which I totally understand. And it, it just was, it was something that I said, you have to learn. You're, you can't just do stuff like this. You, have to learn more about what you're doing before you do stuff like this. You're affecting people's lives. And then, you know, we just educated ourselves and we learned everything that we could about their customs and practices and where they came from and why they came here. And so it was a great learning opportunity for me and for our unit. But um, man, that was sad and scary. That is sad and scary. And honestly, like if I was in an emergency situation, like if that car, if that kid had gotten hit by a vehicle or some other traumatic event had happened, I probably would have done the same thing. So it's neat to see, right? How many different cultures we have in, in here in the US, but it is also kind of sad because we don't go out of our way to learn about these different cultures. Um, that was something that I got to do when I was doing a lot of my community paramedic stuff was learning about different cultures that are here in New Mexico and learning about those cultures and, and the things that we do differently. That was eye opening, but there's so many different cultures. It is, it is better to, you know, ask beforehand if you have the, uh, the ability to, you know, and 
Something that we have here now is the ability to use telephone services for trans, uh, translation if we need, which is really neat. Those are wonderful. Those, those are, have been a game changer. You know, we use those all the time. Um, I used them a lot when I was helping moms breastfeed, because if I had a mom that wasn't speaking the language, I could get on the video call and I'm trying to tell her like, okay, we need to turn the baby this way or turn your breast this way. And it was just so easy. So those were really game changers for us as healthcare providers. Yeah, I wish we had that a lot earlier than, <laughs> than yes, we did, but exactly. still really, really cool, useful tools for our services. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Michelle, it has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed having you on. I've learned so much out of <laughs> out of this conversation. It's been fantastic. I appreciate you coming on so much. Well, thank you, Sam. It's been a lot of fun for me as well. I hope you have a good day today. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 Nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 Nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.